The reading is from 1 John, starting at chapter 2, verse 28 to 3, verse 10. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Thanks so much, Eve. Uh, if you've got the Bibles, please do keep them open. I'm going to be referring to them um, this morning as we look at this great passage together. My name's Jez, by the way. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the leaders at the church. It's lovely to have you here this morning. Well, let me be honest, I don't know that much about parenting, um, but one of the things I've picked up observing friends um, raising children is that a, a big part of parenting seems to involve instilling good habits in children and, and encouraging them to persist in those habits for their good. Now, I read about a bit of an extreme example of this this week, so I've been reading a book called Atomic Habits by a guy called James Clear. And he was saying that in the, in the 1960s, there was a Hungarian couple called Laszlo and Clara Polga. And they decided that they were going to raise brilliant children. That was their decision. Now, Laszlo was a strong believer that genius was not something that was innate, but that it could be taught. As long as there's hard work, as long as there's good habits, you could become a genius. And so he and his wife decided that they were going to test that theory on their own kids using the game of chess. So they planned how their children were going to be chess prodigies. So they homeschooled their kids. They filled the house with chess books. They had pictures of famous chess players all over. And, and the kids would constantly be playing each other at chess. They'd be finding local tournaments that they could compete in. They ensured that the children's lives were dominated by chess and dedicated entirely to being as good as possible at this game. Now, they had three daughters, Susan, Sophia, and Judith. 
Susan was the first. She began playing chess when she was four years old. Within six months, she was beating adults at chess. Sophia was the middle child. She was even better. She became a world chess champion by the age of 14. Judith, the youngest, did even better than her sisters. By age five, she could beat her father. By the age of 12, she was the youngest player ever in the top 100 chess players in the world. And by the age of 14, she had become the youngest grandmaster of all time. For 27 years, she was the number one ranked female chess player in the world. 27 years. Now, I'll let you decide whether that's a model of parenting you want to replicate with your own families or not. And I guess for many parents, it's enough of a job trying to encourage their children to persist in eating vegetables, doing their homework, and brushing their teeth for longer than five seconds at a time. But either way, all of us recognize that raising children involves helping them to persist in good habits, helping them to have healthy patterns of life that will serve them in the long run. And as we look at this passage, and as we look at 1 John altogether, that is what John is doing with the Christians he is writing to. He considers himself a parental figure. He refers to them as dear children. He thinks of them as his children in one sense. And if you look down at verse 28, the first verse in our passage, it says that he wants them to continue to keep going with healthy patterns of life so they will grow as mature believers in Jesus. Now, in previous passages, John has put the emphasis on right beliefs, ensuring that Christians believe the right things about who God is and who Jesus is. In this passage, he emphasizes right behavior. And what is true for the audience that John was writing to is true for us. If we want to grow as mature disciples of Jesus, the way we live matters. Being a Christian means life change. It's not simply a label or something we can write down in the census. We're to be transformed. So as we look at this passage together, let's see a little bit about how that works and what the Lord wants to speak to us as a church about this morning. So the first thing to say is this. Christians are God's children. Christians are God's children. So before we get into the behavior, let's think about our identity. Look down at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. John writes this extraordinary paragraph. And a big theme of the whole passage, actually, is that Christians are God's children. They're not just John's children. More fundamentally, they are children of God. They are born of God, verse 9 of chapter 3. But here in verses 1 to 3, John just kind of takes a step back. And he wants us to reflect in wonder about our status as children. Look at verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we could be called or we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So all Christians have this unique blessing and privilege of being sons and daughters of God. And for John, this is not a small thing. It's as if he's just had to stop and say, wait a minute, everyone, let's just think about this, how big it is. There's a tone of astonishment. This is what we are. How amazing. 
the theologian J.I. Packer once wrote that the fact that we are children of God is the biggest blessing of being a Christian. He would describe it as the sum of New Testament religion. The greatest gift we're given, greater even than having our sins forgiven, being given a clean slate, the fact that we have the Father as our Father. And I'm assuming if you're like me, maybe you could take that truth for granted. Because when we think of being children, we always think it's easy to think of that as being something that has always been the case. Okay? I have never not been a child of my mum and dad. There's never been a point where my mother and father weren't my biological parents. And if they weren't, I wouldn't exist. So I've always been a child. And because I've always been a child, I know that as a child, there are obligations on my parents. Particularly when I'm little, they're supposed to look after me. They're supposed to give me shelter and love. I have the right to expect as a child that my mum and dad will provide what I need. Give me care and love. But that is not quite the same with us and God. We are not, or he is not, obligated to care for us and love us. In fact, unlike with our parents, there were times where we as Christians actually were not God's child. In fact, the Bible says that before we were Christians, we were God's enemies. We were hostile towards him. We sought to live our own way. At every turn, we did not recognize him as the rightful ruler of our lives and the loving creator that he is. And so we were heading not for loving arms of a heavenly father, but for the righteous punishment of a righteous judge. But what has happened to us as Christians is that God has made his enemies his children. That is a remarkable thing. That is indeed a love that is lavish, as John would say. You know, sometimes those who are enemies can be reunited. Sometimes they can say, let's let bygones be bygones. Put things aside. Decide that they can let each other live their own way and get on with life and put enmity down. Rarely do true enemies become friends. How much more intense is it a love that someone who was an enemy could be become a child, a child of God? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. We get to call the Father our Father. We can come to him about all the things that bother us, He is committed to looking out for us, to caring for our well-being, for giving us a future and an inheritance, for giving us an intense love as our Father. That is not something we should take for granted. It's a wonderful thing. We're children of God. But it's not yet obvious that we are children of God. Look at halfway through verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So to be a child of God is is to have the highest status imaginable. And yet, by all obvious appearances, Christians look quite normal, the same as everyone else. You know, if I walk down Market Street on a busy Saturday, hundreds of people, there was no obvious way for me to tell who the Christians are in the crowd, 
It's not like we're kind of levitating and hovering down the street with a halo, kind of glowing, okay? Um, it's not obvious. And certainly to those who are not Christians, our status as God's children is, is not at all obvious. And the glory and wonder of that is kind of lost on them. But John says that one day, the full implication of being God's children will be evident to everybody. Look at verse 2, halfway through. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Christians anticipate and look forward to the physical, literal, bodily return of the Lord Jesus to this earth. That's our hope. And the Bible says that when that happens, at the end of history, we will be visibly transformed in a way that will make our status as God's children absolutely obvious to all. We see different levels of transformation in life today. I don't know, faint glimpses of what that will be like, maybe analogies. You, you do see people today who can be transformed in an instant because of so, something they've experienced. One of the most powerful examples of this I've come across is seeing people with dementia listening to music. So dementia is a heartbreaking condition. It's a brain disorder. It destroys memory, thinking skills. It eventually destroys the ability to, take, to carry out everyday tasks. It's, it's a cruel, heartbreaking condition. And to those who love them, dementia sufferers can seem to shut down slowly. They become a shadow of their former selves. And yet, with dementia sufferers, music has been shown to have quite a powerful impact on them. There's a YouTube clip uh, from a documentary called Alive Inside, and it follows this elderly man um, in a care home in the United States called Henry. And Henry has dementia, and, and you see him, and he sits in a wheelchair, he's got hunched shoulders, his head is down, his hands are together, his eyes are narrowed and unresponsive, he struggles to answer the most basic yes or no questions, and he seems grumpy, confused, trying to make sense of life and struggling to do so. And in the video, he's given an iPod and some headphones that he gets to put on, and he's given music to listen to, music that he liked when he was younger. And as this music plays, you see him visibly transform. His eyes go wide. He starts singing along. He starts rocking in his wheelchair. It, it's transformed. It reanimates him. It's as if life has been injected into his bones. It's a beautiful thing to see. And perhaps in an even more glorious way, John says in these verses that Christians will be transformed. We will have new life given to us. In particular, it says that we will be like Jesus. Jesus has a resurrected body. He has a body free of vulnerability and pain, a glorious body. And our hope as Christians is that one day our body will be like his. 
Now we have to deal with all sorts of weaknesses that come with age, unhealth, and pain in our bodies. We're also aware of the reality of sin in our hearts that frustrates us. But one day, the Bible says, we will be transformed in a way that will make what we are like now seem like a shadow of who we will be. It will be like we have come alive, free of all the weakness and pain and sin that we experience now. But unlike Henry, it won't be due to what we hear. It will be due to what we see. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible says that seeing the Lord Jesus in his glory will be so powerful that the mere sight will transform us on the spot. That's what it says. And it strikes me, for John to say this is, is, is quite profound. You know, if you think about John, at the beginning of 1 John chapter 1, he said that Jesus is the one whom we have seen. And John was one of Jesus' best friends. He sat right next to him at their last supper. He was um, the disciple whom Jesus loves as is described in the Gospel of John. They were close. They were close friends. And John had seen Jesus. He'd heard his voice. They were close. He'd seen him. But he'd not seen him like this. And when Jesus comes back, all God's children will see him. And John will have no greater privilege than any of us. We will all have this equal glory glorifying vision of Christ that will change us. The sight of it will be so potent that we'll be transformed. And this is the hope of the new creation. The scriptures talk in varied images about what the new creation will be like, the age to come where all sin will be done away with and pain. And I think we're led to believe that we will have meaningful and joyful work to do, great fellowship with each other, We'll create culture, we'll grow in knowledge, it'll be wonderful. But the chief blessing will be to see Christ and know him. To see your Savior face to face. That's going to be the biggest glory and privilege about the new creation. You know, you're not ever going to be bored by that. Your heart and your mind will be expanded to take it in. For eternity, you're going to delight in seeing and knowing Jesus Christ forever. You know, we all go through life hoping to catch a sight of something that will transform us. And we all have ideas of what that vision will be, the vision that will make us new people. For some, it's the dream of seeing the face of a spouse on a wedding day. For others, it's just a, a room full of family and friends all together who love us. For some, it's to see our names on an award or on a certificate. All those things are fine. But they don't hold a candle to be able to see the God-man, Jesus Christ, in his glorified body face to face. Only something transcendent can captivate your heart for eternity. Nothing else will do. You know, people do all sorts of things to try and connect with the transcendent, don't they? They take drugs. They take alcohol. 
to feel high. But after every high, there's always a come down, there's always a hangover. Only that which is infinite can captivate you forever. And seeing Christ is that thing. To see him, it will transform us, it will make us alive forever. That is the privilege of being a child of God. Loved by the Father, transformed through the Holy Spirit, and delighting in the Son for endless days. That's where we're heading. Christians are God's children. This is wonderful stuff. But why does John bring it up? Why does he say this here? Which leads to my second point. Children are like their fathers. Children are like their fathers. You know, I've always looked a little bit like my dad. Uh, When I was a kid, people would come up to my dad when they saw me for the first time and they'd say, Alan, my dad's name's Alan, Alan, he looks the spitting image of you. He looks just like you. And without doubt, my dad would say every single time, I should hope so. I'd be worried if he didn't. And you see, children take the likeness of their parents And that's physically, but also in terms of temperament as well. Have you ever had the experience of having a friend and then you meet their parents for the first time and then you think, ah, yes, it all makes sense now. (laughs) As a general principle, you can tell children from their parents. And John's point here is that you can tell who God's children are because they are like God. So we've seen that one day we will be like God in the sense that we'll have a glorified body like Jesus. But John's point is that we are not only like God in the future, we are like God now through our godly behavior and character. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 3 verse 7, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. God's children bear the family likeness. Just as God lives righteously, so Christians, God's children, live righteously. Now, John's not saying that in order to become God's children, we must live righteously. Not at all. Rather, if you are God's child, you will live righteously. And that is confirmed. Look at verse 9. Remarkable statement. No one who is born of God will continue to sin Because God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, we'll talk about how this passage passage covers sin in in a moment, but do you see the point in verse 9? God has put his seed or his Holy Spirit in the heart of a Christian so that they cannot but live a godly life. John Stott put it like this, we're given a new nature which remains in us, and it exerts a strong internal pressure towards holiness. We're kind of dragged towards holiness, living a godly life. And you notice the link with the second coming, Jesus' return in verse 2 to this holy living. Look at verse 2 again. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure and what he's saying is Christians when they know that they are going to see Jesus 
They're going to the new creation. They're going to behold him in his glory. What they think is, I want to be like him now. I want to, I want to love God better. I want to love my neighbor better. I want to be gentle and, and gracious and strong and courageous. I want to stand up for the truth. Live God's way, even if others oppose it. I want to be like him. One remembers Jesus' promise in the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say about those who are pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God's children take this principle seriously. And therefore, they seek to purify themselves, to grow in maturity, to grow in more obedience to God. Because children take after their father. But there is more than one father mentioned in this passage. We're not just told about God and his children, but we are told about the devil and his children. Now, a week or so ago, um, the singers Sam Smith and Kim Petras got a bit of attention for their performance of their song, Unholy, which they performed at the Grammy Awards, particularly for the use of devilish imagery. So there were red leather costumes, there were hats with horns, suggestive dancing in cages, fire in the background, stereotypical kind of hellish imagery. Uh, and it made controversy amongst some, some were really upset about it, viewers complained, etc. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking what's really interesting is that we, we associate the devil with certain types of imagery. So we think about occult symbols, we think of horns, we think of five-pointed stars, Ouija boards, or whatever. But interestingly, you know, the Bible doesn't really lean heavily into that kind of stuff when it talks about the devil. And talking about the devil feels weird anyway, doesn't it? Particularly in a sophisticated culture like ours. It sounds primitive, almost embarrassing. Nevertheless, the Bible does speak of the devil, a being called Satan, a spiritual being, He doesn't have a pitchfork or a tail. He doesn't dress like Sam Smith. But what he does do is oppose God. That's what it means to be devilish, to oppose God. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And when he says lawlessness, he, he doesn't just mean we fall short of a standard. Like, I could have given 30 quid to charity, but instead I only gave 20 because I was a little bit stingy. That's not what he means here. Sin is lawless. That is, to be lawless is to refuse to submit to God's authority. It is to oppose God's will. So sin is rebellion against our good and glorious creator. It's a spirit that says... I know what you've said you want, God, but I don't want to live that way. I do what I want. And it is this lawlessness that is associated with the devil. The work of the devil and the work of Christ are utterly at odds. Look at verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The purposes of Jesus and the purposes of the devil are fundamentally opposed. 
And so this is John's conclusion, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. John's point is this, and it's very important. You do not need to be a member of the church of Satan to be a child of the devil. All you need to do is disobey God and reject his rule. All you need to do is refuse to sit under Christ's authority. And that is shown by a life that disobeys God. Where you don't live to God's ethical standards, where we don't love other people. According to this passage, all of us are children of one of two fathers. God or the devil. And John's point is that you can tell, broadly speaking whose father you have by how you behave. That's pretty striking, isn't it? And challenging. And it also leads us to the question, what do we actually do with this passage? Because it's quite black and white, and it seems to just describe things as they are. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Okay, what do I do with that? Well, I first read this passage seriously when I was um, just out of university. Back in the day, in this church, we used to have something that was called Bible Reading Partnerships. BRPs, for short. Burps. I don't know if we ever called it that. But, um. Now, for a while, I was in a BRP with a friend, and we thought that we would read through 1 John together. And, and we thought, you know, we'll meet up. We don't need to do much prep beforehand. We're relatively intelligent people. We'll be able to figure out what one John is all about. I'm sure it'll be fine. The folly of youth. We read passages like this and we came across some of the statements that really struck us. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What do we do with that? What does that mean? What does that mean for those of us who are struggling with our faith? There will be people in this room who fear they're not truly a Christian. They struggle with assurance. These are sharp verses. What do we make of them? Well, first, we have to remember that John has already told us in chapter 1, verse 8, that this side of heaven, we will all have sin in us. Those who say they have no sin deceive themselves. So any interpretation of these statements in chapters 2 and 3, they need to bear that in mind. They're going to be relative in some way. And it seems that when John talks about sin here and sinning, he means willful, continual, unrepentant sin. I think the tense in verse 9 is quite helpful. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. There's a persistence there. This is not the sin of someone who feels guilt when they do wrong and is doing their best to fight sin, although struggling and often failing. This is someone in a settled habit of disobedience. Someone who is casual about it. Not someone who regularly falls, but is seeking, um, sorry, it's not referring to someone who regularly falls, but is seeking, although inconsistently, to serve Jesus and live righteously. Okay. 
But still, what do we do with this passage? There are a lot of statements. What is John wanting these Christians to do? Well, there are only two commands in the passage, verse 28 and in verse 7. So let's just look at those. Firstly, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. When we look at passages like this that seem quite hard, we have to remember the context. John is someone who loves these Christians who he's writing to. He considers them his children. He cares for them. He wants them to thrive. So I don't think this passage is meant to give Christians with a sensitive conscience an existential crisis. I don't think it's meant to make them think, am I really a Christian, when they struggle with assurance. Commentators note that John's audience had been troubled by false teachers, false teachers who were trying to lead them astray. They were saying that they knew how to really connect with God, but it seems that behavior and obedience to God in his law were not that important. And John's point is, look, you can tell who these people are when you look at them. You look at the way they live their lives. It's not in obedience to God. And as such, they are children of the devil. And so John puts things in stark language so that these Christians will see who are the right teachers, who are the right people to follow and learn from. Do not be led astray. And so we have to heed John's warning today. We must not be led astray. There are people today who will tell you that you can connect with God in a way that bypasses his commandments. They may present the Christian faith as like a bit of an add-on. If you add a few routines to your life, then you can be a Christian. There are also people today who tell you that you can be a Christian but still live according to all of our culture's values, even the ones that are explicitly against what Scripture teaches. Sometimes they even put quite godly-sounding language around it. They say things like, well, you know, Scripture, it sets a trajectory. And, and what's happened is now after you know, years of church history and, and with progress and with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, we now know, we have a fuller revelation, and we know how to obey God in this area that's maybe a little bit beyond what the Bible originally said. What would John say to that? Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. What about those of us who are perhaps new Christians or exploring what Christianity is all about? Please don't think Jesus is just an add-on to your current life. God's children are like their father. They're transformed. And we need to ensure as well that we are not led astray by ourselves. Sometimes we tell ourselves that as long as we deal with the big sins in our life, the smaller ones get a bit of a soft pass. You know, if we have a little bit of bitterness in our hearts, if we gossip, if we are prayerless, that's not as bad as long as I deal with the big things. What would John say? Jesus came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so the same should be true for us. We should fight sin. We should hate it. 
We should be ruthless with it. Do not be led astray. And then finally, look at John's other command, verse 28, right at the beginning of the passage. He says this, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. I am so encouraged by that verse. You know, John does not tell his hearers to be sinless. He doesn't tell them to extinguish every last stain of disobedience from their hearts. He doesn't lay that expectation on them, although he does expect that we will grow in godliness. He doesn't tell them to be perfect as such. He simply says, continue in him. Continue your life with Christ. Keep holding on to Jesus. You know, maybe a passage like this, as you've read it, has revealed to you your weakness and failure. That is okay. Come to Jesus for mercy. You will find it. You'll receive it. Jesus has destroyed the work of the devil on the cross. You are free from death if you trust in him and continue in him. His arm is round you as he leads you through the Christian life, through the ups and downs. So continue with him. That's John's call to us. And that way, when he does appear again, when we see him, when we delight in him, we will be confident and not unashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being called your children when we were your, your enemies. We do not deserve it. We haven't grasped the depths of it. We never will. We never will. But Lord, you have given us such a glorious status that we can call you our Father. We can be assured of your care and love. And you've defeated sin through the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we thank you and we are excited that we can see Jesus face to face one day. And that that will satisfy our souls like nothing else can. Lord, give us a, a hope and an anticipation for that. And help us, Lord, to be like you and like Christ in this life now. We thank you that you've put in us your seeds so that we will grow in holiness, even though that sometimes seems small and slow. But Lord, please help us not to be led astray. Keep us from things that would tear us away from obeying your commandments. Rather, Lord, help us to continue in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.